0: Let's pray. Almighty God, the fountain of all wisdom, you know our necessities before we ask, and our ignorance in asking. Have compassion on our weakness, and mercifully give us those things which for our unworthiness we dare not, and for our blindness cannot ask. Through the worthiness of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever, Amen. Amen. Well, this uh, this week was uh, Prime week. If did where Amazon runs their Prime deals, anybody get any deals this week? I see none. They're 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 not capitalizing on our market, are they? I actually shopped for some. I have, I wanted one thing, but I didn't see it on a deal, so I I, I used restraint and I didn't buy anything. But what is interesting is, is that with that Amazon deal, if you wanted something, you had to act because the deal goes off. And we're all familiar with that. We know, we know how that is. Um, we're, we're familiar that you have to act in a very timely manner in order to take advantage of whatever this deal is in our consumeristic society. We're familiar with that. It's very common to us. But how is it that we feel more, whatever, comfortable, more aware, uh, more of a pressing need to act on those closing deals than we do on our spiritual life. This lesson today, Jesus is talking to a group of people and he's explaining to them that there's a limited time to act on the invitation to come into the kingdom. So last week we talked about how That healing happens in the kingdom of God. Jesus is coming, announcing, preaching the kingdom of God, inviting people into the kingdom of God. Here in this passage, um, the main thrust of this is that there is a limited time to act on that invitation. So, first thing we're going to see is a presumption of favor. So look with me in verse 22. It says... He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, this question is rather abrupt. It kind of comes out of nowhere and seems, certainly seems odd to us uh, that somebody would just pipe up and ask this. But the, in, this, in this context, the, the Jews believed that all Jews would be saved. Now, except really bad Jews, you know. There, there were, there were some who were really bad, like the sons of Korah, like Absalom. Uh, there are, there are other really bad Jews in the Old Testament who, uh, they don't hide. They, they put them right out there and we can recognize them. And those people, sure, maybe, maybe they are not saved, but the rest of the, rest of the Jews certainly would be saved and then, the rest of the Gentiles, with a few exceptions, would all perish. That's the, that's the thought. So the question was meant to solidify Jewish feelings of superiority in this, in, this, uh, in this day. They had the temple, they had the law, they had the prophets. Surely, this salvation to them was just a given. So they rested on that. There was a presumption of favor with God. Now, this presumption might uh, describe the people of our day, if from from my perspective, anyway. Many talk as though they will certainly go to heaven, or they talk of others who have gone on and how they are looking down on us. There's an assurance that any, virtually anybody who has passed resides now in heaven. And I find this odd, because even at funerals of people where... People have not gone to church. There's no sign or evidence of any fruit of a faith at all or interest in the things of God or things of the church. This person is uh, proclaimed as one who has entered the kingdom. And and I now I'm just speaking in my own experience. And I, I have had the... I think that would be a misfortune. I, I got to proclaim the gospel to a room full of people who were unfamiliar with it, is what I would say. But yet, in that room, the, the uh, people who had died, they, it was talked as if there was no doubt in the people's minds here that they were in heaven. I think there, perhaps, we, the church, general society, has been influenced by evangelical uh, American Christianity kind of like our own brand of Christianity. And, and we have that. We really do. It's just not. it's not biblical. It's not the gospel. There's, a, there's an American gospel out here, uh, or Americanized version of the gospel, and it's not what the Bible says. So what, what, we, what he's warning about in this passage, what they needed to be hearing from him was this warning of this presumption of favor with God. So Jesus, though, doesn't he doesn't address, he doesn't specifically answer this immediately. Instead, he gives a command. And so the next thing we see is a command for life. And the remaining part of 23 and then 24 says, And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So this door is narrow. Now, Luke doesn't contrast this with the wide gate like Matthew does, that that and the wide path that leads to destruction, but the meaning is still here. Jesus says that there will be many, many, who will seek to enter, but they'll not be able to. He tell, he, now, he says that there will be people who are seeking to enter, but they'll not be able to, yet he tells us, he tells them, which is telling us as well, that we need to strive to enter. Now, I find this interesting. What's the difference? Is there the difference between seeking and the difference is the difference between seeking and striving? I think there's something more than that. This Greek word that we describe we translate as strive um, is something like agonizomai. That's probably close. Which we get the word agonize from. So, this, this effort to get in to the narrow way is significant. Now, if we're not careful, if we don't have the, the, this passage in the context, and we're going to get to other passages where, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna see that God is the acting agent in our salvation, and, uh, He's the one who is responsible for it, but, there is a personal responsibility that we have, and this is what we're looking at with this passage today. And it's not that we are saved, we know we're not saved, by our efforts. So we are we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. We recognize that. But to enter the kingdom is going to take effort. So... There's a response to this grace which awakens us and brings us into the family. And then this agonizing striving is what we are to do to enter the way. Now, I've, I find this interesting because this, that D.A. Carson quote has entered my mind multiple times over the last few weeks that one does not drift toward holiness if you, you all see stuff floating down the river, you know it's going to it never goes up river, Always comes down. What's going with the curtain? Current. current I'll, I'll say curtain again. Um, but it's drifting. It's drifting along with the tide. So this striving, this agonizing, is about our personal efforts in response to the grace we've been given, and it will take effort to put our Faith into practice or to practice our faith. It doesn't just come naturally. It doesn't come easily. It is something we actually work for. Um, And we, kind of like the Jews, we are a privileged people, even more so than those Jews. We've been given so much. We've been given the Word of God. We've been given. The uh, history of the church. We've been given the church. We've been given this the the people of God to share life with, to have an intimate relationship with, where God's love comes to us through His people and in the church. How we are nurtured and shaped and formed into His image through His Word, through the preaching, through the sacraments, but through the fellowship of the saints as well. So we are a privileged people far more even so than those Jews. Yet, if we're not careful, we can presume about our salvation. And I think there's a presumption of salvation that plagues the church today. Because there are not many who are willing to put off what it takes to get through that narrow door. The parable of the sower, if you'll remember, addresses this. That there are, there, there are four types of soils. There are more, there's more than one type of soil that responds in a positive way, but there's only one that actually takes root and actually grows and produces fruit. The others, the other, the other soils, there's an appearance of growth. There seems to be an interest. So somebody comes to this idea that we like Jesus or this idea that we like eternal life is there. Okay, I get that. But then, and, and, you know, from our perspective, we say, sure, that person is saved. That's our, our, it's our terminology, and it's poor terminology, because saving or salvation includes a lot of things, and the final saving is happening on the separation between the sheep and the goats. That's not how we see it. We say they're saved because they had a turn in their life at some point. Maybe they said a prayer. Maybe they walked an aisle. Maybe they raised their hand. We don't know what that deal is, but where's the fruit and does it last? The parable of the sower says there will be people who respond and appear to have faith, but then it, 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 it wipes, it's wiped out. It gets wiped out by the cares of the world. The cares of the world, the ending prime deals, the ending sale, the thing that we have to act on immediately, those, the, the immediacy of those things that are coming at us from every possible, uh, corner of culture come at us and we respond to those or we act on those, or we build into those, instead of building into our faith. And so, the faith gets choked out, and the, the uh, that soil does not produce fruit. That's the parable of the sower. So the reality is, though, that there are a lot of people who talk about um, uh, the fact that they are Christians. You know, maybe Grandma was. Therefore, I must be. And, I, I'm, and when we're into a checkbox kind of Christianity... I don't know what a Buddhist is, so I wouldn't check that. I don't know what these people are. I don't know what that is. But Christian, yes, grandma was. I'm a Christian. And it's kind of a checkbox mentality. That's a presumption of God's favor. And this is how, this is how the people who you are interacting with, because they're the same people I'm interacting with, this is how lots of people consider this. So it's a presumption of favor. But what they really need to hear is a command for life. And this, idea that it's easy is just not there. There's a reality that this door is small. I got so much junk in my garage, I can't even open my back door all the way. And, I, and my trash can is through my garage, which uh, I've complained about in my neighborhood somewhere. People steal things. My, my nice trash can I did have, they, somebody stole my trash can. But I was going through my garage. That's a side note. I was going through my garage with a great big box and my door wouldn't open all the way. So no, the door was narrow. Well, of course, as I do, I, you know, this box is too big, and I'm too lazy to move stuff. That's why the garage is a mess. And so I just force it. Something's gotta give if this is going through. Well, I knock a tray off that I had screws and wire nuts and all kinds of small parts in. It's all over the floor now. But something had to give if that box was gonna go through there. Well, the reality is, is that when the door is narrow, what is it in your life that you're willing to put off in order to get through this narrow door? Uh, you know, and it, and it may look messy. It may look a bit like my spilled tray of nuts and bolts and what have you. But the idea is there are things that we're clinging to that we desire and hold of greater value than we do of our Lord Jesus. Are you willing to let some of those things go so that you can get through the narrow door? I recently read a story of Alistair Begg, uh, who is a well-known preacher in Cleveland area or outside of Cleveland and he's on the radio perhaps you've heard of him he was visiting a college town in order to uh, give a um, a talk at a conference and while preparing for this talk putting his finishing touches on he entered a coffee shop in town very early in the morning kind of seeing the town wake up and all these different people come into the coffee shop and he's thinking of the varied interests in all these people who are coming in and he's thinking to them perhaps the gospel is way far off and something that they wouldn't be too concerned about and then he looks across the way and there's a an asian girl reading uh her bible and so he she seems to be uh diligently studying the scriptures and so he engages her and says i see you're reading the bible so are you a christian and she says, "Yes, I have found the narrow way." I found this very interesting. I've, the, it's the reason I was reading the story the story is interesting, but it, it was interesting to me as well. That so here she is. She was she's um, she was from Korea, so she's like ten thousand miles away from her Buddhist home. She's studying at Harvard, which is like a bastion for aggressive pluralism. And yet she understood her Christian faith so, so well that she expressed it as the narrow way. I find that to be an encouragement, that in the midst of what might appear to be a place where, and people, where things of faith may seem dim or far off, that one can hold true to their faith and recognize the narrow way. The command to find life is to strive to enter that narrow door. But like that good deal on Prime Day, the invitation won't last forever. And so we see this urgency to follow, beginning in verse 25. 25 says, "...when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence." And you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Well, So what we obviously have here is another hard passage. The be- and, and this is the beauty of just flipping the page and continuing through a book. Because there are some passages that we've already covered that I wouldn't pick to share with you. All I want to do is encourage you, encourage you, encourage you. But I find that actually in these hard passages, Jesus is encouraging us. And he's encouraging us to discern our faith and is it real or not. Um, he, He doesn't want people to assume that they know him. He wants people to know him. He doesn't want people to know about him. He wants people to know him. You, you know how that goes. You, you've been asked, do you know so-and-so? And you're like, well, I, I know of them. I mean, like, I've seen the name. I've been in the same room with that person once or twice. That's hardly a relationship. Jesus wants a relationship, one that we know him. There's a... There was... That's what these people had. There was this familiarity with Jesus. They, they'd seen him preach in their streets. They'd seen him eating and drinking. So they had a familiarity with him, but they didn't have a relationship with him. They weren't willing to submit to him as Lord. Their hearts were not changed. Their hearts were not turned. I don't think he's giving us unwarranted warnings to just put fear into us. He's speaking to something that's very real. Somebody to give lip service. But they're not, their hearts are not in it, their hearts are not turned. They really don't know him. So we don't want to presume on his grace or presume on his favor. We don't want to presume that we are going to be in right standing. Yet somehow, in the midst of not presuming, we can have confidence as we understand that his our justification is done by him. Our sanctification is us working out that. That uh, that that resurrection that he's worked in us, and we're working out that salvation with our fear and trembling, and we are putting forth effort in uh, our faith. At some point, the window of opportunity will close, and I know, I know you've got these people. I've got them in my 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 life and in my family where they're a burden on my heart because. They claim to know Christ, and maybe they do. But where's the effort? Where do they, will they even like come to church? And I see this over and over and over again. I see people who claim Christ boldly, but they don't come to church. I'm thinking if you like Jesus, you might like those things he liked. He seemed to like the church. He gave himself up for her. The idea that I am a saved individual, but I can't find a group on the local level, who I can commit myself with, there's something wrong. That becomes a burden on my heart. I don't just dismiss that. Because I read this passage, and I'm saying, where is the heart? I'm thinking, okay, my friend, it's time to get over ourselves. We're not that great, but I think you could come join us. But it would take a humility that is consistent with one who's been regenerated. One who's not concerned about having everything right, not one who's concerned about being the only right one, and not one who's concerned about how everybody's just going to look at them. It takes a humility and a security that we find in Christ Jesus alone. And in those people who burden my heart, I know that one day the window's going to close, whether it's going to be from their own death, your, your death, their death, there's going to be a window of opportunity that closes. Perhaps it's the Lord's return. And that should, yes, the Lord's return should put fear into us. But the fact that you may meet your end today should also put a little fear into us. That should encourage us toward urgency in, in following him. So as, and, and, and we're going to wind down and we're going to transition into our, our baptism. But I, I want to say that in this baptism, we're doing just this. Now, there's a concern. There's concern with believer's baptism. There's concern with infant baptism. You know, one of the reasons people do believer's only baptism is because they don't want people to presume on the favor of God because they don't want people to assume that they, these children have been saved. So you grow up, now we think we're saved because we were baptized. Well, on the believer's baptism, all we do is take people at their word, sometimes there's a stirring of emotions, sometimes there's a good preaching of a gospel message, and then there's the closing of the sale, and we're putting the timeline on the prime deal, and you come to God right now. And so, I was in a meeting the other day, and my friend Todd Hill said, you know, we could scare every kid into Jesus. He was talking about Vacation Bible School being a great outreach, but we, we we don't ask people for a commitment. We don't ask kids for a commitment. He said, you know, we could... We could have every kid commit their lives commit their lives to Jesus, and that's that you know quotes for commit because you're talking to a little kid we could scare we could scare them enough that the, would you and 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 we can knock on doors and if we're good enough, we can scare people out of hell and claim that they're in heaven. The reality is, is we don't know, but in ours in, in our uh, understanding of, of the whole of scriptures is the, what, we, what we have is a relationship with God through covenants. And God has given us a covenant to be in relationship with him. He had a covenant in the Old Testament, and he had a covenant with his Old Testament people. And people were marked to be in the covenant by a sign of the covenant. And that sign was circumcision. And so as we move into the New Testament, there's a new covenant, and that sign is water baptism. And I've said this in different places. I'm not sure that everybody's heard this, but a lot of times when you would come into a church, and I'm and I'm sorry, I don't know my uh, I don't know my architectural uh, lingo very well, but if that's the narthex out there, as you come in, the sometimes a baptismal font would be right there. So they they shape the pews so that you can still get around, like a crowd can come and go, but the the uh, baptismal font is like firmly planted right there. It's like, and, you know, an, an efficiency-minded guy like me says, this thing's in the way. Why did they put this here? Well, it's to remind you as you come in, and we all come in this door typically, but if we were to really use the front door and we came in that door, you would walk by the baptismal font, and some people will dip their fingers and put a cross on their head or, or cross themselves and remind themselves that they enter the church, that they become part of God's family through water baptism. So that's the sign of the New Testament covenant. And so what we understand is that there are are people who are in the covenant of God. These are not first-generation believers by the time we have covenant families having children. If you as believers start having children, then... We put that sign of the covenant on them. Why? Because they are a part of the family. They are part of the family of God. This also says two things. This says that you, as parents, are willing to take on the responsibility for actually raising your child in the faith, but then the church also commits to raising and helping raise your children in the faith, to help explain to your children the things of what the creeds are of of what the Lord's Prayer is, of what the Ten Commandments are, and teaching the things of Scripture to them so that they will know, so that they may come to a place where they can embrace their faith for themselves. And this is what our prayer is. And this is what we want to see. So there's an obedience factor that's kind of going through the narrow door. There's a thing of putting off because I'm being obedient to the Lord as I bring my child to the church and say, I want my child baptized. Because there's a, a a commitment on the part of the parents. And then at some point in time, later in that life, that little child may, Lord willing, and we're banking on the promises of Him on the front of your bulletin. It's uh, there's Acts 2.39. Whole passage of Acts is preacher is peter preaching a wonderful sermon and at the end of the sermon people are uh, cut to the heart over their sin and they say what must we do and he says well you should then repent and believe and be baptized and then he says in 39 he says and for this promise is for you and for your children for all who are far off and everyone whom the lord our god calls to himself so there's this understanding that this, we're not committing in just sheer hope. There is an expectancy as we go through this that this child will come to faith. So, heed this command for life. Enter through the narrow door. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Oh God, you are a good and gracious God who... Know that you, you know that we